Good morning. My name is Lisa Williams, and our scripture reading for today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 38. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Lisa, for our scripture reading this morning. And I always want to say thank you to the worship band for the great job that they do for us. <laughs> and I'm impressed, man. It's uh, tornado warnings. You got uh, thunder, severe thunderstorms. And you're here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be a good day in God's house. <clears throat> it's always a good <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about that. I said, you know, <laughs> should have preached. I should have preached on Noah and the flood today or something. <clears throat> anyway, but we're glad you're here. I hope that you'll take the time to uh, write down things that Holy Spirit may prompt you to remember in our time together. There's a sermon notes and there's a study guide. We encourage you to read the Gospel of Luke for this season of of uh, Lent. So I hope that you'll take the time to do that. Just have that in your bulletin. Let's uh, pause and ask for God's. Blessings upon us as we enter this time of worship. Gracious God, we just say thank you for your word. We read these stories, God, and we know that there's a meaning here for us. Something you want to say, something you want to convey to us. And God, I pray that you would help us to open our minds and our hearts and our very souls. That we find the meaning in this text for our life today, which you where you need to move us in order to be the people you call us to be. So, God, we offer this moment to you. I do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are actually in the midst of a series of sermons where we're exploring the Gospel of Luke together. And we're trying to look at how Luke portrays Jesus. Because more than any of the other Gospel writers, Luke points out Jesus' concern for the people in his society who are considered to be the nobodies. That's why we're calling this the Gospel of Nobodies. And, you know, in Luke's gospel, you really get a picture of Jesus' heart for the marginalized, the uh, outcast, those who are made to feel as if they're insignificant, invisible, unloved, unwanted, the nobodies. And Luke's gospel is trying to help us to see that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, part of our mission in this life is to be concerned about the nobodies of this world and to help these nobodies come to understand and to recognize that they are somebody in God's eyes. In fact, for Luke, if you're not concerned about the nobodies of this world, then you're really not yet an authentic follower of Jesus Christ because this is central to his teaching. You're going to find these themes throughout Luke's gospel almost on every page. And one of the ways that you hear Jesus talking about this is through the uh, stories or the parables that he tells where he often contrasts a nobody with a somebody. There's several examples of this. I'll lift up a couple to you. You remember the story, uh, his, his parable on the prodigal, of, the prodigal son. And in this story, you really have two sons. There's the older son, who most people see would consider to be the, the righteous son. He's the one who did what he was expected to do. He uh, stayed at home. He was faithful to what was asked of him. He was the uh, somebody. And then you have the younger son who squandered all that was given to him, and he ends up being a nobody. But when the father welcomes this nobody home 
the somebody gets jealous and resentful of the nobody who's being treated like a somebody. And so you hear, you see in this story how the somebody, the older brother, really ends up being the one who is more lost than his younger brother. Another example is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here you have a man who was beaten and robbed and uh, cast to the side of the road, left for dead. And then you have this priest and this Levite who come by. And these are the somebodies of society. They're the religious leaders, highly respected. And yet when they see this man laying on the side of the road, they are too scared to do anything to help him. Or they might be defiled somehow or unclean or whatever. And so they walk on by. And then you have this Samaritan that comes by who is definitely considered to be a nobody among the Jews. And uh, this guy ends up helping the man on the side of the road. And he takes care of his needs. And uh, so he becomes a good Samaritan. He becomes the hero of the story. So here again, you see how a nobody ends up becoming a somebody. And the somebody is pointed out to be the ones who are really not getting it. In the story that we have before us today, you have Jesus going to eat at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Now, Pharisees, they're somebodies, right, of society. They're the highly respected religious leaders of society. And um, while Jesus is there eating with this Pharisee and his friends, something really scandalous happens. (laughs) Uh, They have this, uh, uh, this prostitute who crashes the party. And so you now have this Pharisee who's seen as a somebody, and he gets schooled on what it really means to be a somebody in God's eyes. Now you're meant to pay attention to these kind of contrasts in Luke's gospel when you read these stories between the somebodies and nobodies. Okay, when we talk about the Pharisees, which is critical to this story we have before us today, when you think about the Pharisees, what kind of characteristics come to mind for you? What do you envision um, for some people? When they think of Pharisees, they think of the word hypocrite. That's what Jesus called them, right? You, know, you hypocrites and uh, vipers and all this kind of thing. He had a lot of names for them. Uh, you, you think of these people who are uh, holier than thou, um, the people who are uh, religious judgmentalists. They, uh, are, they think better of themselves than everybody else, and they're kind of a um, judgmental type of people when it comes to their religious ideology. <clears throat> but in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were really highly respected. They were... Uh, the religious leaders of the day, they weren't the priests, but they were uh, scribes. They were uh, uh, rabbis, teachers, some lawyers who interpreted the law of Moses, and that was their focus of what they did. The term Pharisee literally means to be set apart or set apart. And that's actually what, how they lived their life and how they saw themselves. Uh, they were the holy ones that tried to avoid having anything to do uh, with sin And that also meant associating with anybody who was a sinner because they were trying to be an example for the rest of the people of what it meant to live a holy and righteous life according to the law, to be a good Jew. Of course, you know, you couldn't uh, not associate or at least encounter some sinners in your way every day. Uh, But they did not do things like invite them to their house, fellowship with them, eat with them, that that kind of thing. They avoided at all costs because they wanted to be set apart. So the Pharisees always tried to associate themselves with people that were like them. Other people who were trying to live right and according to the law, and, uh, and they would avoid these uh, sinners, these uh, Amhar Arets. Uh, we learned that term a few weeks ago. The people who were the outcasts, one of the fringes, not, they were unclean sinners, the nobodies of society. So they separated themselves from them. They, the Pharisees would you know, try to teach these people. They would try to you know, lead them to a life away from their sinful lives. 
but associating with them, fellowshipping, now that was something they tried to avoid at all costs. just looked bad for them to be doing that. Now, the Pharisees also were very passionate about the law, the law of Moses. In fact, their whole faith centered around uh, living according to the law and trying to interpret the law and to make that clear to what the law means to everybody else. A good example of this is that how there's one law in the law of Moses that says you are to honor the Sabbath and you are to keep the Sabbath holy. And you're not to try to do anything that would be considered to be working on the Sabbath. And, you know, from in their effort to try to make this clear to everybody, they came up with 39 categories of ways that could be considered working on the Sabbath. And within those 39 categories, there was long lists of things that were to-dos and not-to-dos and, you know, things that you needed to do in order to not work and to keep the Sabbath holy. And so they, they took what the law said and they created hundreds of laws trying to make those things clear, you know, what you should do, what you shouldn't do in order to be a faithful Jew. The challenge, though, that you have when the focus of your religion becomes rules and laws is that you begin to think that the way to please God, the only way to please God is by following all the rules, doing all the laws, living according to that. And when your faith is built around rules and laws, then what ends up happening is your focus becomes more on the rules than on people and on God. And that happened for a lot of Pharisees. That's where their focus was. And when you make that the focus of your faith, you know, abiding by the rules and the laws and trying to do everything correct and right, that just kind of sucks the, the joy out of faith. <laughs> I mean, it's really no fun. I mean, you never can live up to that. You're always like, ah, I didn't do that. Ah, I didn't miss that. You know, it's just, just never good enough. Well, this became the primary area of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in his day. The Pharisees would say, to keep the Sabbath, uh, you don't heal anybody unless it's a critical emergency. Jesus was always healing people on the Sabbath because people were more important, you know. Uh, of course, that made the Pharisees mad and they complained. Why are you always breaking the law and you're healing people on the Sabbath? Well, because God cares more about people than he does about the law and the rules and the regulations and stuff. And they were always in conflict over this. One day, uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. It happened to be on a Sabbath day. And, you know, you're not supposed to pluck any grain on the Sabbath day because that is constituted as working on the Sabbath. But while the disciples are walking through the fields, they reach over and they pluck some of the grain. They rub it between their hands to kind of get all the husk off of it, which is considered to be threshing, and they eat it. And then the Pharisees begin to complain, why are you disciples uh, doing things they're forbidden to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus finally says, look, guys, you're missing the whole point here. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. He's trying to point out that these rules, the law of Moses, were created to bless you. They were created to try to help you to become the person God wanted you to be. Uh, the, the focus of the law is uh, designed on Sabbath to give you rest. It's designed to, to help you to renew your faith and renew your faith in God. It was never designed that you become so focused on the rules that you miss the blessings of what the Sabbath was intended to be. But that was their focus. Some of you may have grown up in this kind of religion based on rules and laws. I can remember some of my friends growing up in high school that, um, you know, they, their parents told them that they shouldn't listen to rock and roll because it was the music of the devil. And so they had to get rid of all the records. They, had, they couldn't come to school dances. They couldn't go to concerts with us. 
uh, because, you know, that wasn't pleasing to God. And you had to do things. If you wanted to please God, you had to live this way. And that's kind of what you get when it's a rules-based faith. The focus becomes on the rules instead of on people and on God. I think another area where we are tempted in this is to um, live by the rules or by the laws and just keeping all those things is that that can tend to make you self-righteous. When we make following the rules the focus of our faith, then what you end up with, you start um, noticing everybody else who's not living according to the rules. And you're trying to keep them, and so you become smug about yourself, but you start noticing everybody else. You start looking down at everybody else, like, oh, see what they're doing, you know? Because they're not living right. That becomes your focus, and that can turn into self-righteous judgmentalism. This is actually one of the top reasons that young people claim they don't have anything to do with the church today is because of too many Christians who are judgmental toward others. Self-righteousness, it could be something that we all struggle with. This is why Jesus said, you know, don't be so concerned about the splinter in your neighbor's eye. First, deal with a log in your own eye. He says, judge not, because by the measure you're judging everybody else, that's going to be used against you. So we don't need to do this. To further illustrate this point, Jesus told another parable. where he, Again, one of these parables where he's contrasting the nobodies with the somebodies. He talks about two men going up the temple to pray. There's a Pharisee who's a somebody. And you have a tax collector who's a nobody. And the Pharisee, when he prays, he's looking over at the, uh, the tax collector and saying, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy. I mean, I tithe, I give to you, I worship you, I pray, I, I try to follow the, the law. Aren't you so blessed to have someone like me as your follower? And then Jesus says, when the tax collector prayed, he didn't even look up to heaven, but he bowed his head and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Then Jesus asked the question, which... Of these two men, do you think went home from the temple that day justified before God? Here again, you see how a nobody ends up being a somebody in the story. And the somebody, they're seen as a self-righteous nobody. Self-righteousness is something that Christians tend to struggle with a lot in the world. <clears throat> but when you think about Pharisees, there are also a lot of areas that Jesus had in common with the Pharisees. They were both Jews. <laughs> Jesus was a rabbi like them. He was a teacher of the law. And there was even some, some Pharisees who um, actually followed Jesus. There was Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. There was Nicodemus. And we read about various others. <clears throat> but the main difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees sought to separate themselves from the Amhararetz, the sinners and the outcasts, people who were unclean, not righteous. They sought to separate themselves from those people where Jesus saw these people as his mission field. This is why he came. This is who he's trying to reach. And these two different focuses found themselves in conflict with each other quite often. So with that in the understanding, you have this Pharisee Simon who invites Jesus over for supper. And uh, he's with his other friends. There's a lot of other people there. And because Pharisees tend to associate with themselves, you assume that these are other Pharisees or religious leaders and such. And they're all there at this dinner and having dinner together. And then something astounding happens. The town prostitute enters the room. And when she enters the room, Simon gasps. And you can imagine all the other men do the same thing. And Simon's thinking, how dare this woman comes into my house. And I can reckon Jesus is listening to what's going on. He's seeing it. 
And then you, you notice how Jesus, the story describes that this woman is carrying a little jar, an alabaster flask that was often worn around her neck. She's got a little jar in her, her hands of precious ointment. If this is anything like the story you read in Mark's Gospel or John's Gospel, uh, this uh, jar contained nard, which is an extremely uh, expensive ointment, uh, oil, perfumed oil. And uh, this little jar would have held about uh, the, the equivalent of a year's worth of wages in it, if it was nard. So in today's term, you can imagine this woman carrying this little jar, about $30,000 worth of precious oil, ointment in it. Uh, you know, back then, people didn't have mutual funds to invest in. They invested in commodities like this, where... Um, if something happened, this was probably her most valuable possession. She could have sold it in case of an emergency or whatever. But she brings this with her. And as she's entering this room, if you could just imagine with your mind's eye, um, her hands are shaking. She knows she's not supposed to be there. She knows the eyes of judgment are upon her. Every man in that room has preached against women like her. But she's heard that Jesus is there. And so she comes in the room when she sees Jesus she falls at his feet and she begins to weep her tears falling on his feet now when Jesus had come into Simon's home Simon offered no water to wash Jesus' feet which was customary hospitality in that day so Jesus' feet would have still been dirty from the dust and his sandals on the dusty road and her tears are now falling on his feet and it's her tears that are washing the dust from his feet and then she takes down her hair, which was a scandalous act in that day and time. I mean, uh, prostitutes did this when they were uh, you know, turning a trick in private. They didn't do this in public. No woman did. But she takes down her hair and she begins to wipe and wash the dirt from his feet with her hair. She kisses his feet. And then she breaks open this jar of precious ointment and she begins to pour it on his feet. When you read about that story when you hear it what are you envisioning <laughs> some people hear the story and what they see is an act of extravagant love gratitude worship devotion that she's this woman is showing to jesus and you know there's got to be a backstory to this this event i mean something had to have happened here i mean why is this woman doing this why is she seeking jesus why does she barge into uh, simon's house knowing that she's not wanted there uh, why does she uh, fall at jesus's feet crying why is she uh, breaking open this jar of precious ointment anointing his feet why is she doing all these things something had to have happened we just we have to assume that at some point she had met jesus or jesus had encountered her in some way and perhaps for the first time in her life she heard those words you are loved you're not just a nobody. In God's eyes, you're a somebody. You matter to God and your sins are forgiven. I would hope that if I'd have been there, I would have recognized in that moment and what I would have seen would be an act of great, extravagant love to be awed by. But that's not what the Pharisees saw. In Luke's Gospel, this is what we read. <clears throat> now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. And then Jesus spoke up and he said, Simon, I got something I want to share with you. And he begins to tell Simon a story. 
He said there were two men who owed a debt. One of these men owed 50 denarii, which would have been the equivalent of 50 days worth of wages. The other man owed 500 denarii, which would have been about two and a half years of debt. But the man that they owed the debt to graciously decided to forgive them both their entire debt. And then Jesus asked the question, which of these two men do you think loved the man more in response to what he had done for them? Simon said, well, of course, it's the one who was forgiven two and a half years worth of wages. Then Jesus said, Simon, don't you understand that people who have been forgiven much love much? I can imagine Jesus looking at this woman when he said that. And then he says something that is probably the most beautiful thing that's a part of this story. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? All Simon can see was a prostitute, a sinner, an amharareth, unclean. He couldn't see that this was somebody's daughter. This was somebody's sister. He couldn't see what might have happened in her life that led her to this place. I mean, I'm sure she didn't grow up uh, dreaming about becoming a prostitute someday. Something had happened in her life that led her to this place. Simon couldn't see any of that. Do you see this woman? Well, it's clear that when Jesus looked at this woman, what he saw was a child of God. What God saw when he looked at this woman was the little girl who was dedicated to the temple that day to him. He remembered her growing up as a little girl and the potential she had. He knew about the plans that he had made for this woman, plans to bless her, to prosper her. He knew about the, the brokenness in her heart. He knew about the emptiness in her life that had led her to this, this place. And he knew all of that about her, and yet he still loved her. A few chapters earlier, we read in Luke's Gospel that Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. This is what Luke wants us to understand. But this was Jesus' mission. These were the people that he came to, to reach out to. And when we read stories like this, it gives us a picture of how God sees us. When God looked at us, he doesn't look at what we've been, but he looks at what we can be. He looks beyond our sin to the person, the potential that we can be. He doesn't condemn us. He offers us grace and mercy. Now, I know that's a message that a lot of people uh, don't hear growing up. Some of you may have been that, where you grew up in churches that when you went to church, most of what you heard was how bad you were, how much of a sinner you are. Like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon back in the 1700s, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. But is that what we see here in this story? Now, of course, we need to recognize that we're all sinners. But the gospel message is not about how much of a sinner we are. The gospel message is about how much God wants to save us. The the gospel message is about how God wants to reach out and redeem us and save us. The gospel is not focused on rules and and laws and, and guilt and fear and all these things. It's focused on God's grace. Of course, you need to recognize your sin. We need to recognize that we need to not lead the kind of lives we're living. We need to confess those things to God, repent of those things so that he can save us and transform us and redeem us. 
But the primary focus of the gospel message is that we serve a God who looks at a person like this, a prostitute, and he says, I love you. You're my beloved child. I know everything you've done, and yet I still love you. You're not a nobody. You're somebody in my eyes. I came for you. When you read these kind of stories, it brings clarity to what the gospel message is. You know, it's not about a God of wrath and a God of fear and guilt. We're reading about a God of compassion here, a God of mercy, a God who longs for the lost and the amharets and the prostitutes and the, the sinful and the unclean. He longs for all of those people to be brought back home into his arms. It's not wrath that we see here. It's love. And again, I'm not dismissing the fact that God hates sin and that we're all sinners and we're all going to be held accountable for our sins and judged by our sins someday. But, you know, the focus of the way the gospel talks about this is the way that sinners are transformed and redeemed is not by fear and guilt, but rather by God's love and God's grace. And that's what we see here in the story. And that's what Luke wants you to understand. That's how God looks at us. There's another uh, contemporary story that's told in uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About God's Grace. And it's a very famous story. You may have heard this before, but it's, it's one that brings to the point what we're talking about this morning. It's the story of another prostitute. It's a woman named Gloria who lived in Traverse, Michigan, or Traverse City, Michigan. And uh, she becomes angry with her parents when they begin to, in her opinion, they overreacted to her piercing in her nose and her... Uh, her music that she listened to and her short skirts and things. And so she gets angry. She says, I'm going to run away. And she decides to run away from home. She does this and she actually ends up in Detroit. And there she eventually meets a man who offers her the only job she was able to find in order to survive, which led her to a life of prostitution. And she did this for a while until she became sick. But then when she becomes sick and no longer able to perform her duties, <clears throat> they kick her out kick her on the street without a penny to her name. So now she's sick. She's cast out in the streets, uh, broke, penniless, alone, scared. And she said, I was sleeping in an alley one night, and I began to wonder what it would be like if I went back home. And so the next morning she decided to get up and she called her parents. She actually tried to call three times and Nobody answered, so she just left a message on the voicemail. And she says, Mom, Dad, it's me. I'm wondering about maybe coming back home. I've got a bus ticket. It should have me there about midnight tomorrow night. I understand if you're not there, I'll understand. The bus ride was about seven hours long, <clears throat> during which time she had a lot of time to think about what's going to happen. Are they going to be there? Are they not? What am I going to say to my parents when I see them? She actually began to rehearse her apology to her parents. And then when the bus finally arrived, 10 minutes past midnight, as she gets off the bus, she doesn't know what to expect. But nothing really could have prepared her. Of all the thousands of scenarios that she tried to imagine, nothing prepared her for what she encountered. As she got off to the bus terminal, she saw a group in the back, about 40 of her family members that are her parents there, her brothers, her sisters, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, her, her grandparents, her great-grandmother was there. 
They were all wearing these ridiculous party hats and blowing these horns. And there was a computer-generated screen on the back wall saying, Welcome home. And then she said she saw her dad emerge from the crowd, coming to her with tears coming down his face and his arms open to her. As he approached, she began to recite that apology she had uh, recorded in her mind. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know. And he put his hand up and he said, Honey, there's no time for apologies. We're just glad that you're alive. We're glad you're home. Come. I've got a big party planned for you back home. Everybody wants to see you. And Gloria found herself enveloped in this sea of love and family. This is what the gospel wants us to understand about God. This is what God is like. Um, God says to those who consider themselves to be nobodies, you're not a nobody to me. You're a somebody in my eyes. You matter to me. I know everything that you've done, and yet I love you. I love you with a relentless love that will never give up on you. I want you to come home. And what we're supposed to be as a church is a place where the welcome home sign is always up. (laughs) Where when the nobodies come, we're to be those ones who are saying, I'm so glad that you're home. Welcome home. Because this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That spirit, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And we're going to take a moment here just to do some reflection. And as you prepare to pray, I just want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself in the shoes of that woman who came to Jesus. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. We've done things we shouldn't have done. Um, We wish we wouldn't have done. We've all... um, Find ourselves in those places where we feel far from God because we've run away from God. Some of us have been in the shoes of those Pharisees where we look down our noses at others who are not like us. But in the end, all of us stand in need of God's grace. So I just want you to imagine Jesus reaching out to you today, saying to you, I love you. Relentlessly, I love you. There's nothing that you can do to stop me from loving you. I will forgive you. I will give you a a fresh start. If you find yourself in need of that today, I want to invite you just to reach out to Jesus and to take his hand. We all need God's grace. I need it. You need it. He's offering that to you today. So in your own words, tell him, I need you, Lord. I want to be forgiven. I want to be set free. I want to come back home. And God, I pray that we would be the kind of church that puts the welcome home sign up every week. I pray that we'd be the kind of people who don't find judgment upon others, but rather we offer grace. Where people can find in this congregation people who will love them relentlessly, no matter what they've done or who they are. God, help us to be the kind of church where The nobodies feel like they're somebodies, and the somebodies begin to see others with your eyes, with your heart. Forgive us, Lord. Make us new. Make us in the people you call us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.